It is now 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Sin and judgment. If we were to describe this chapter, it would be remaining faithful. Being a faithful believer, a faithful follower of Christ. The last chapter was on preparedness for suffering in the face of opposition. And this chapter, faithfulness throughout no matter what opposition we face. Chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself. Approve to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth." And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil 
having been held captive by him, to do his will. Amen. It's been necessary in this series to point out constantly, since it is easily dismissed and easily ignored, that the Bible has many things that it expects us to do and not to do. In this case, in our chapter, to remain faithful in the face of suffering. Remain faithful in the face of suffering. And this suffering might even entail dealing with the onslaughts of false teachers. Whenever they present their heresies, we must understand what they're saying and understand how it is incorrect, unbiblical, unscriptural, and needing refutation. As well, we notice in this chapter that he tells us many times what is positive and right and correct that we should do, and he also tells us the opposite, what we should not do, what we should avoid, what is wrong, what is heretical, what is false, what is devilish. He tells us the opposite as well. So anything that deviates from his positive statements or his negative statements, positive, what we should follow, negative, what we should avoid, anything that deviates from those would be a sin. And it would be worthy of judgment. He has many, many in this chapter. Verse 1. In verses 1 to 7, in the first paragraph, verses 1 to 7, he presents a few analogies or metaphors the kind of people we ought to be. Verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The appeal, the command is to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. If we are weak, we are feeble, we are wobbly, we are unsure, we are doubtful, then we are not holding firm the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ must be accompanied by strength, not weakness, not failure at any cost in any way. He has given us grace, so why should His grace end up being powerless in our life? Why should His grace be impotent in our life? Why should His grace fail to produce fruit in our life? It doesn't work that way. That's why the exhortation is to be strong. A reminder that the Christian life is accompanied by strength in the grace of Christ, not weakness. How then is it manifested? Verses 2 to 7. Verse 2, And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The Apostle Paul, he taught openly and uh, publicly and privately. He taught people individually, and he taught them in groups and even in large groups. Whatever he taught, in this case, he's referring to the public with many witnesses. Many witnesses, everyone knew exactly what his doctrine was. Everyone knew what his instruction was. Everyone knew what he was claiming as an apostle of Jesus Christ. There were many witnesses. Remember in 1 Corinthians fifteen six, it says that Jesus Christ appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And in the same case with the Apostle Paul. He appeared to great crowds, especially when there was controversy, and he boldly told them the truth, even with a big audience that was susceptible to having false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, goats among the sheep, in the midst to rise up against him. Yet, Many witnesses heard his uniform, consistent teaching. So what he taught, 
He's saying, these entrust to faithful men. Well, first he taught Timothy, whom he calls my son in verse 1. First he taught Timothy, and then he's teaching Timothy to entrust those doctrines, the truth of the gospel, to faithful men. Not unfaithful men, but faithful men. Faithful men are the ones, as mentioned in 1 Timothy, those who are not new converts. 1 Timothy 3, 6. In 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3, it says in verse 10 about deacons, let these also first be tested for deacons to be tested. Further, it says in 1 Timothy 5, 5.22, 5.22, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Likewise here, what was entrusted to Timothy, the gospel, is to be entrusted to faithful men. And in turn, they are to teach who will be able to teach others also. We have here four generations of disciples. Four generations from the apostle, who was older than Timothy, to Timothy. From Timothy to faithful men, however old they are. And then those faithful men are to teach others also. It's supposed to be conveyed in this way. Finding faithful men, entrust them with the truth, and expect them, equip them to teach others. This is how the gospel spreads, and this is how it is conveyed from generation to generation. That would be being strong in the grace of Christ. Verse 3, another example, 3 and 4. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Suffer hardship with me. Remember, he said so in chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. He also says in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 9, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Chapter 3, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. In chapter 3, verse 10, he first says what the virtues are that we ought to follow. But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and love, perseverance. Then the afflictions in verse 11. Persecutions, sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Keep in mind that every Christian who is seeking to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, he has to also keep in mind that he will suffer hardship just as the Apostle Paul did as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We see he calls it a good soldier. What's the difference between a good soldier and a bad soldier? A good soldier is a soldier and fighting for the right cause. A bad soldier is a soldier fighting for the wrong cause. What is the good cause? Of, he says, good soldier of Christ Jesus. The good cause is mentioned in chapter one, uh, 1 Timothy 1, 18. 1 Timothy 1, 18. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. 1 Timothy uh, chap, 
First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. 6, 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And this fight is not a fight for which we can retire. There's no retirement plan for soldiers in the kingdom of God. It says in 2 Timothy, how do we know? 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. As the apostle mentions some parting words, he says this about the end of his life. 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. This is until the end of life. Fighting the good fight, finishing the course, keeping the faith. That's the good fight for the good soldier of Christ Jesus. That is holding forth, maintaining, and dealing with all of the uh, missiles, the darts, the, the flaming, uh, fiery shafts of the evil one. We have to fight against the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the devil uses the world and our flesh to fight against us. But we must withstand as a good soldier. Also, verse 4, 2 Timothy 2, 4, another statement related to the soldier, a good soldier. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. When a soldier is in active duty, he does not entangle himself in the affairs of everyday life. What would it mean in the Christian life for us to be entangled in the affairs of everyday life? Does he mean we're not supposed to be concerned about getting up, making our bed, making breakfast for the family, going to work for the family? We shouldn't be doing things like that. Is that what he means by the affairs of everyday life for the good soldier? No. We find in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. He's talking about entanglements in sin. Entang- the analogy is being entangled in the affairs of everyday life for a soldier who's supposed to be an act of service is comparable to fighting the Christian life against the entanglements of sin. Second Peter 2.20 For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. He speaks here of entanglements and entangled in what? Entangled in sin, caught up with sin, trapped by sin, in the snare of sin. That's what he means. So we're not to be about being caught up, enticed, trapped by sin, but please the one who enlisted him as a soldier, who enlisted us. Christ. If we are trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, then we won't be practicing sin. Ephesians 5.10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So always do what our heavenly master desires, not what sin desires, because we must master sin. Its desire is for us, but you must master it as God said to Cain, yet he refused. We must not refuse, but obey our heavenly commander. He is the captain of the hosts of the Lord.
That's Jesus Christ. Verse 5, another comparison. He illustrates with the athlete. 2.5, and also if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. An athlete who legitimately wins is not a cheater, but he follows the rules. He follows the rules so that whatever the sport, he can be the winner. Now, if the athlete does so to win a prize, an earthly prize, following rules, the rules of the game, and he gets the first prize, the first place prize. He gets the championship. He gets the gold medal. If he's doing it that way, shouldn't we be doing it that way? So what would the rules be for us? The Word of God. Whatever the Word of God says. Whatever it says to do, whatever it says not to do, that's how we judge it. So we compete as God wants us to. Verse 6. The farmer. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. What kind of a farmer are we talking about here? Are we talking about the lazy farmer who stays in bed until 9 o'clock in the morning in harvest time? Are we talking about that kind of a farmer? Are we talking about the farmer who says, oh, it's the middle of summer and it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it's too hot, I'm going to go inside and just ignore the crops, ignore the harvest, or even ignore supervision of the workers, the harvesters in the field. Is that the way he's supposed to do it? No. The hard-working farmer, he endures afflictions. He endures hardships. He endures the, <coughs> the, the blazing heat of the summer. But he also has to be diligent in the fall and the spring to do what's necessary to prepare the ground. He has to do it in anticipation. And when he does it, he is the first to receive his share of the crops. He is able to enjoy his hard labor. He is able to say, I have no greater joy than this, to see my children walking in the truth. Second John, or Third John, verse 4. Third John, verse 4 and as well with Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.5, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. He's mindful of the genuine, sincere faith within Timothy. Verse 7, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This statement is a a very full statement, actually. Verse 7, consider what I say, what I, an apostle, the apostle Paul, this assumes the apostle knows he's writing scripture. He knows he's writing scripture. That's why he says, consider what I say. And after or while you consider what I say, the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The Lord's word delivered will be the Lord's word illumined. He will shed light. He will open our eyes like Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. He is the one by his spirit who will guide us into all the truth. The spirit of truth will guide us into the truth. This is John 15, 26 and John 16, 7 to 11. The Spirit of God sent by Christ will teach us and guide us. So for us to comprehend the Bible, it is possible, how so? Not by neglect, 
not by ignorance, but by consideration, by meditation, by knowledge. We must know what it says, and we have to consider what it says, and then also depend on the Lord to give us understanding in everything. Now, 8 to 13, verses 8 to 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Remember Jesus Christ. Why remember Jesus Christ? Who he is in person, who he was in practice, what he did in his ministry, and what did he accomplish? He was both the Son of Man and the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That's in Romans 1, 1 to 4. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. That's this Jesus Christ. He descended from heaven to accomplish his work, and then he ascended back into heaven. But meantime, he needed to accomplish his work, which included what? Dying and rising from the dead. Dying for our sins and rising for our justification. He died and rose again on our behalf. If we are called to persevere, who is the ideal example of perseverance, suffering, knowing the will of God and doing it. Who was the perfect soldier? Who was the perfect athlete? Who was the perfect farmer? Jesus Christ. That's why he's saying, remember Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Risen from the dead, he endured all the way to death, which is what the apostle anticipates for himself death by execution in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 18. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The humanity of Christ is also mentioned by calling him a descendant of David. Why is it important for us to note that he was a descendant of David? Because David was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and elsewhere, he was promised an eternal kingdom, David. It would be named after David. Why? Because the one single descendant of David, Jesus Christ, would be the eternal king. Therefore, David has an eternal kingdom, an eternal dynasty. That's because of Christ, the descendant of David. So though Jesus died, he has this eternal kingdom as promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. This is also why in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, he is called the son of David. He's called the son of David, that special, unique son because of his eternal kingdom. Now, this is said in anticipation of verse 12. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Christ has an eternal kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, but we also shall inherit that kingdom if we endure. Further, verse 8, he says, according to my gospel. This phrase, according to my gospel, we find it also in Romans 2, 14 to 16, where he calls it my gospel. Well, why does the apostle say my gospel? Is he saying he invented the gospel? He originated the gospel? The gospel is his religious idea or religious fiction? 
No, he does not mean it that way. He means the gospel that he believes and the gospel that he's preaching, he knows to be the true gospel. The gospel he's preaching, he is thoroughly convinced that this is the true gospel and he wants others to know and be as convinced as he is in this true gospel. Verse 9. For which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. He suffers hardship. In Acts chapters 21 to 28, we have the Apostle Paul in and out of prison, under arrest, and then taken from place to place before one authority and another authority, and finally taken to Rome by the, by the end of the book of Acts. So he is one constantly in the prison as a criminal. But was he a criminal? Is it criminality to preach the gospel? Is it criminality to live according to what the Bible expects us to do and how we should live? No, that is not criminality. Criminality is theft, it's murder, and crimes such as those, but criminality is not freely and openly preaching and practicing the gospel. But wicked men think it is. And wicked men will consider us criminals, but we're not criminals, not before God. Before men we might be, but not before God. Don't let us think that because Christians faithfully preach and they are arrested, they are thrown in prison, that that must mean that they are wrong, that their gospel is false, that their master is impotent, that he's not real. A lot of people think that way and walk away from the faith when they see trials like this. But that's not the case. Further, it's, it's not the case that though the man of God, the saint, might be put in prison, the word of God is not imprisoned. The word of God cannot be bound. For example, in 2 Timothy 4, 17. While the Apostle Paul was in the prison, it says this, 2 Timothy 4, 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. While he's in the prison, who else is there? Other prisoners and guards and those who come to visit the prisoners, correct? Family and friends who come to bring food and come to seek the welfare of the inmates, correct? So he has opportunity even there to preach the gospel. And then what do they do when the visitors come? They visit for a while and then they leave. And the gospel, though the prisoner is there, Paul is there, the word got sent out because they heard it for a while and then they went out, they went back to their homes, they went back to their employment, they went, went back wherever, to the synagogue, and they spread the gospel. The word of God is not imprisoned. And even this, we have a clear example of this in the book of Acts chapter 28. It says that when Paul reached Rome, he was under house arrest, and large numbers of the Jews, they heard about this controversy and they wanted to hear what this was all about. So Paul, he preaches to them in large numbers, it says. They weren't in the prison but they came, or in house arrest. Paul was, but he was, he was allowed to receive visitors in house arrest. So he preached. We shouldn't get despondent and dejected when we feel like our hands are tied and even if we are literally in handcuffs and chains. (coughs) 
it's not just the apostles' lot. All Christians should be willing to receive this kind of treatment. All. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke 9.23 Verse 10 now. For this reason, I endure all things. For what reason? For the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. What's the Apostle Paul thinking? He's saying, I am suffering for this reason. I am enduring all things for this very reason. What is the reason? So that he might be a tool, a messenger, an aid for the chosen to hear the gospel and be saved and receive eternal glory. He's considering the fact that he is going to be like it says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 to 8. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. I will be an instrument. I will be an agent in the hand of the Lord to save the chosen. The chosen. That should be in the forefront of our mind as well. That may arouse more courage in us, knowing that we are tools in the hands of God. Verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement. Now, in poetic fashion, he presents a few truths here. This, all of this is trustworthy, and all of this is a summary. That's the purpose, often, of poetry or riddles, to summarize a truth in a memorable way in a short form. The first one, what is it? Verse 11. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we died with Christ by believing in Christ, we shall also live with Christ because Christ is alive and alive forevermore. And because we believe in him, risen from the dead, because I live, you shall live also. John 14, 19. If we die with him, we shall also live with him. So firstly, it's necessary to die with Christ to live with Christ. And dying with Christ includes what? Rejecting sin. And then living with him, he who is without sin, now and forever. Amen. Verse 12. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Endurance is necessary to reign with him. He who endures till the end shall be saved. Matthew 24 13. Romans 8. Romans 8. 17. Romans 8. 17. If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. If we endure suffering with Christ, we shall also be glorified with Christ. Verse 12 has another. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we deny him, he also will deny us. There goes unconditional love. If we deny him, how would one deny him? What are the ways one might deny him? Well, one might deny him by profession or lack of profession, lack of admission and confession that we belong to him. 
For example, Matthew 10, Matthew 10, 32 to 33. Matthew 10, 32. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. If we deny him with our mouth, then he will deny us. There's another way we can deny him, and that is by our behavior. 1 Timothy 5, 8. 1 Timothy 5, 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Denying Christ by our actions. And then th- this is <clears throat> mentioned in Titus 1.16, denying Christ by being a hypocrite. We deny Christ by hypocrisy. Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What does this mean? If we are faithless does not mean if we have no faith. He means if we are faithless in that if we have weakness in faith, we have a temporary lapse of faith, if there is insufficient faith here and there, he remains faithful. That's what he's talking about. That God will enable us, support us, bolster us when we here and there lack faith, he will remain faithful to us. He will never waver. He will never lack faith. But we might. Remember how Peter did temporarily by denying Christ three times? Remember how Barnabas was led away in hypocrisy and Cephas in Galatians 2, 11 to 21? That's what he means by if we are faithless. Jonah would be another example of someone who was faithless in reference to the Ninevites. David, when he committed sins, was lacking faith in that period of time. But God remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. What does that mean? He cannot deny himself means God promised us eternal life. He gifted it to us. We are possessors of it. He will not take it away. No one can snatch you out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, who is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father, we are one. John 10, 29 to 30. No one is able to do that. I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, 6. He made the promise. He will keep his promise to grant us eternal life. 14. Now, 14 to twenty. One, 14 to 21. He's going to compare and contrast true and false teachers. Verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. We must be reminded 
about the truths he just said. When we are reminded, we should not chafe, we should not scoff, we should not walk away, we should not stop our ears, we must listen. And we must receive this solemn charge in the presence of God. A solemn charge. That means he's being very serious about what he's saying here. What is very serious? Not to wrangle about words. No one should be wrangling about words. And what do wranglers do? Word wranglers. What do they do? They take a word that everybody knows. They take a word that's in the Bible. They even take it, they even take common words. And they will take these words and make them mean something that they don't mean. And then when you are confused or when you confront them about it, they'll say, no, 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 you, you don't understand what I'm saying. No, no, this is what the truth is. You just misunderstood. They do things like that. They also do things like this. He mentions it in verse 16. <coughs> Avoiding worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. We'll see the example of it in a moment, that is with Hymenaeus and Philetus. But this worldly and empty chatter is mentioned in 1 Timothy 6, 20 to 21. 1 Timothy 6, 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. They have hijacked the word knowledge, which is a biblical word, and they have invested it with a meaning that is not a biblical meaning. This is wrangling about words. This is worldly and empty chatter. And this has to be understood to be a serious, a serious sin. Because he says in verse 14, when we dabble, when we prolong and dabble with wrangling of words, it's useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. The hearers get confused. The hearers have doubt. The hearers don't know what to believe. The hearers won't believe in the truth. It will lead to the ruin of the hearers. So no wrangling about words. The godly man, the man of God, will do what? Verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. In contrast, there is diligence. False teachers are usually lazy. They are usually lazy. They are usually plagiarists. They usually don't care to dig deep into the word and to understand it correctly and then obey it. He says here, be diligent. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. We are not to be seeking the approval of men, but rather the approval of God. Then we are called workmen, a workman. Someone who's diligent, working with his hands, laboring, toiling, sweating over the Word of God. Do not need to be ashamed. Easily, easily, many, many people, many pastors, when they read the Bible, they become ashamed of its contents. They become ashamed of its assertions. They become ashamed of its truth claims. They become ashamed of its individuals. They become ashamed of its saints. They become ashamed of its incidents, such as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
such as the destruction of the Canaanites in the time of Joshua. They become ashamed of those incidents. But we cannot be. We should not be. It says, instead, handling accurately the word of truth. Instead, understand the word of truth in its context and believe that God is good and God is true. We are evil, God is good. We are liars, God tells the truth. That should be the constant demeanor of the man of God who studies the Bible. The opposite is exemplified in these two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, in verse 17. We read 16 to 18. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Talk about useless and leading to the ruin of the hearers. It has upset the faith of some, because this worldly and empty chatter, this wrangling about words, what word is it here? The main word, resurrection. Resurrection. Well, what does resurrection mean in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament? It means that a dead body comes to life. And if we're talking about the day of resurrection, we're talking about immortality. Correct? A body, a physical body. But what have these two false teachers done whose doctrine has spread like gangrene the miserable disease on the human body. He describes it like that. They said, oh, the resurrection already took place. If the resurrection already took place, it has to be what? An invisible resurrection, not a bodily resurrection. Because if it's a bodily resurrection, then there would have been witnesses seeing, oh, So-and-so rose from the dead. Another rose from the dead. And I see his body. It's ascending. It's going up into heaven. But nobody saw anything like that. So they're teaching and preaching an invisible resurrection. But does the Bible teach invisible resurrection? No. Here, another example of them taking a biblical word with an unbiblical meaning and confusing people, upsetting the faith of some. That's gangrene, and it is a serious sin. Then 19 to 21, 19 to 21, he describes us mainly as vessels, household vessels. 19, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Though the faith of some is upset, he encourages us in verse 19, he says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. Others, though, will not be upset in the faith. They will not continue going astray from the truth. They will maintain the truth because God has a firm foundation and he has a seal on the foundation. So what is God's foundation, firm foundation? The Lord knows those who are his. He knows who belongs to him and who doesn't. We may not know. It's not always evident to us, but the Lord knows. Further, let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. How are we going to know who belongs to the Lord? If we abstain from wickedness. If we name the name of the Lord, then we cannot have wickedness and the name of the Lord together. They must be separate. They must be 
completely apart. What is wickedness? Well, the wickedness in the preceding context is theological wickedness. In the following context, in 22 to 26, or 22 especially, it is moral or ethical wickedness. Verse 20. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. We know this to be the case. It's obvious. It's a fact of of daily life. Some are precious vessels, and some are unprecious. We use gold and silver vessels for a special occasion, or no occasion, just set them aside for observation. For beauty. But wood and earthenware vessels, clay vessels, we use daily. The honorable ones are the golden ones. The dishonorable ones are the wooden and earthenware vessels. You, we don't normally take a golden spoon or a golden fork a cooking spoon or fork to make spaghetti, right? But we would take a wooden one. That's what he means. Some to honor, some to dishonor. So how should we be? Should we be like the wooden ones or the golden ones? He says in 21, Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. We're supposed to be like the golden ones and the silver ones. We're supposed to be like that, not like the others, so that we are prepared for every good work. We are useful to the master. A side note for verse 21. This verse has been used to teach free will, that we have to cleanse ourselves. We must cleanse ourselves. He does not mean cleanse myself by myself. He means cleanse myself, cleanse himself, which means when we do the cleansing, the beneficiary is oneself. This verse does not explain how it is possible for a man to cleanse himself. He's not explaining in verse 21 how it's possible for a man to cleanse himself. He's just saying, if he does it, then he will be an honorable vessel. He will say in verse 25 how it's possible. If God grants repentance. If God grants repentance. 21 is more descriptive, but the cause, the reason, is in verse 25, if God grants repentance. Now verse 22. 22. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We ought to be those who flee from sin. We shouldn't be dabbling it, dabbling in it. We shouldn't be coddling it. We shouldn't be treasuring it, but we should be fleeing from it. He said it in 6, 1 Timothy 6.11, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Did not Lot flee from Sodom? Did not Joseph flee from the house of Potiphar because of Potiphar's wife? That's the way in which we are to flee. Flee from youthful lusts. And the opposite, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Alone? In our own house? without mixing with others, without fellowship, without the communion of the saints, without worship in the corporate setting, 
No, it says here, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. If we aren't fellowshipping with one another and worshiping with one another, then we're not doing this properly. He says to do it with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Not apart from them, but with them. It's a sin to avoid gathering with the body of Christ, the local body of Christ. It's a sin. 23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Foolish and ignorant speculations. Avoid them. What would they be? They would be the wrangling about words. They would be the worldly and empty chatter. They would be disputes about words, as he said in 1 Timothy 6, 3-5. That's what we should not be doing. We should avoid those kinds of speculations because they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. So don't be quarrelsome. We know what words mean. We know what the Bible means by those words. So use the words as the Bible means them and express them accordingly. And don't let people bring chaos, confusion, doubt, and upset the faith of some. That should not happen. But then, instead of foolish and ignorant speculations, instead of quarrels, what should we do? Be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Kindness, in our approach, the ability to teach, make sure we know what we're talking about and are able to convey it, communicate it clearly and correctly. Be patient when wronged. They will say things, they will do things, but patiently deal with it. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps, so with these means, he says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Here is the cause. God uses the means of our approach, verses 23 to 24 and 25. He uses the method or the means of our approach, but it's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that if we use the approach of verses 24 to 25, or even 22 to 25, that they will believe. Because he says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. It may happen, but it may not happen. God has to grant the repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Remember, again, this is the reason or the cause of how a man could cleanse himself in verse 21. 26. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The false teachers, the wranglers, the quarrelers, who is their master? Who's controlling them? It says that they are out of their senses. That means they, they are insane. They're crazy for not believing the truth of the gospel. All unbelievers are out of their senses. That's what the Bible says right there in verse 26. That they may come to their senses. Remember the prodigal son? It also says it of him when he came to his senses. 
Then he began his journey back to his father. Further, it says that they are in the snare of the devil. The snare of the devil. John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So all unbelievers belong to the devil. They are in his trap, in his snare. He's caught them. He has captured them. Having been held captive by him to do his will. They think they have free will. They think they're doing their will. No, they're doing the will of the devil. This is the real battle. We started with the battle analogy of the soldier, and here we end it with that. Our real warfare is not against the people, but against Satan who controls them. Satan has convinced them to do his will. We are fighting against the will of Satan. It's either the will of Christ or the will of Satan. Shall we remain faithful? even if it means suffering, even if it means withstanding false teaching. Let's remain faithful. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.